Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This has been one of the most newsworthy years in recent memory of the National Park Service and the National Parks. There's finally a Senate-confirmed director at the helm. Billions of dollars are flowing into the parks for a variety of projects. Wildfires, of course, chewed through Sequoia and Kings Canyon, as well as Lassen Volcanic National Parks. And Lakes Powell and Mead are shadows of their former selves. We're seeing a few more parks moving towards reservation systems to manage visitors. To help me look back over the past 12 months, I've asked Christian Brengel of the National Parks Conservation Association and Phil Francis of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks to help me keep track of things. We'll be back in a minute with Phil and Christian. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Nova Scotia, 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kajimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit NovaScotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. Enjoy a reduced auto loan rate this holiday season with Interior FCU. With rates as low as 1.99% and a quick approval, you could finance a truck, car, or even snowmobile. Dash through the snow and over to Interior FCU for a great rate. For a limited time only, new and used car rates are the same at an all-time low. Interior Federal Credit Union, the official credit union for the Department of the Interior and your natural resource for financial services. Membership is required. Okay, end of the year. We're joined today by Christian Brengo of the National Parks Conservation Association and Phil Francis of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks to talk about what happened in the national park system and to the National Park Service in the past 12 months. And I know I've got my list of things, but I thought I'd, I'd throw it out to you guys first. What, um, what do you think were the most important events, newsworthy, um, of the past 12 months? It's a great question. I think uh, there's no doubt that climate change is on so many people's minds when it comes to parks. The fires, like you mentioned earlier, the drought conditions at Lake Mead and Lake Powell and so many other places, the flooding and the severe storms that we saw along the East Coast, Harpers Ferry, Valley Forge, many parks got hammered with flooding. And we continue to see these weather events and these other natural events occur, and it's no coincidence, it's climate change. And it's time to start really figuring out how we're going to best protect parks as they heat up quicker than any other part of the country. I'd say the other issue that is sort of burning 
on our minds is uh, overcrowding in, in certain parks that um, there's never been a time where the parks have been so popular with the American public. And as folks started to get vaccinated and even before they got vaccinated, folks were going into parks and enjoying them, which is exactly what we want to see happen and, and for folks to appreciate the history and the cultural resources and parks. Uh, we have issues in, in many, many parks. And in some cases, as you know, Kurt, these situations are getting dangerous, including people, too many people on trails like Angel's Landing, where you just really can't have that many people there. Okay. Okay, Kristen, we're going to drill down into pretty much each and every one of those topics. Okay. Um, I just wanted to know what was on your mind to get started. Phil, um, what do you think? Biggest news events in the parks this past year? The National Park Service. Service has a new director. That's right. That's really good, great news. And, and it seems that the department is ready to move forward. I think that there's optimism in one of the first times than, that I can remember for the kind of funding that the National Park Service has needed and still needs. And so maybe we can fill some of these positions and address the issues that climate change brings up, overcrowding brings up, and so forth. So I think, that, I think that's really good news. There's, there's other things that down in the weeds, like the investment review board's review of land acquisition and how, how the implementation of the Great Americas Outdoor Act is going to go and when is it going to move forward and uh, how long is it going to take the service to develop the capacity and um, to make that happen so that the money can be spent wisely. So uh, there's good news and there's huge challenges. And what we haven't mentioned so far is the, the need to change some of the policies that were enacted during the past four years, you know, the Endangered Species Act, NEPA, Clean Air, Clean Water. You know, there's other new issues that are also old issues, air tour management planning that's occurring across the service. So there's plenty to do, you know. I think people who were in the advocacy business uh, probably recognize that just because the last administration went away and we have a new administration, that the challenges are going to continue. The, the work still needs to be done, and so it's going to be an interesting year. This is this is my last meeting as chair of the coalition, and so uh, Mike Murray was going to take my place beginning. In, in just a couple of weeks. Huh. Phil, you've been a great resource to talk about all things uh, parks. Um, you two both hit on just about all the issues that um, I, I got on my short list. Um, perhaps the one that didn't show up was the ongoing oil exploration in Big Cypress National Preserve, which is always a, um, a concern. Now, but let's let's start with the park funding because um, um, you know one of our year-end uh, packages stories is going to be touching on the park funding, and certainly there are billions of dollars running into the parks. Um, Chuck Sands is going to have his hands full trying to see that those uh, monies are spent as judiciously as possible. Does does the Park Service have the the current capacity to to handle all those funds? They certainly need more staff, um, and staff have declined over the last uh, decade or so. And so if the appropriations bill passes, 
the this is the FY22 appropriations bill, they'll add about a thousand extra staff people, which will be hugely helpful in terms of being able to move projects forward for the Great American Outdoors Act. And also just generally speaking, dealing with climate change and vulnerability studies and, and learning more about what the Park Service needs to do to get out in front of the effects of climate change on the parks. And so, yes, they can move projects forward right now. The Denver Service Center is still there. They have capabilities on the ground in certain parks to be able to move uh, those projects forward, but um, they do need the appropriations bill to pass. Congress needs to prioritize that as the first, one of the first things they do next year. Phil, you know, you were a longtime manager. You were superintendent of the Blue Ridge Parkway, um, as well as some other places. It, it just seems that um, in terms of getting federal funding released, I mean, here it is uh, at the end of 2021, and I don't think the uh, fiscal 22 budget has been approved by Congress. Is that is that right? And, right. Um, you know, we're talking about these billions of dollars flowing into the, the parks and I mean, from a park manager's standpoint, how do you operate not having a budget in place to to manage all these different things? Just like we always have. This is this is nothing new. <laughs> you know, we haven't had a, a very many uh, budget bills passed on time in my entire forty years of the National Park Service. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, when we've gone for extensive periods of time where parks were closed. Uh, what was it? Somewhere around 1995, I think, or six, the parks were closed for weeks. So this is this is nothing new. But the challenge, the, what is new, is that we've got more vacancies than ever. Mm-hmm. What is new that the capacity in the regional offices that provide services to small parks has been severely damaged. What is new, of course, is that we don't have a lot of shovel-ready projects you know, to move forward. And so it's, it's better to wait and, get, and do it right than to rush out and, and do it wrong. And so I think that the service is making progress. I think that they're still hampered by the personnel process and the hiring of, and onboarding of new staff, although they're trying to, to new, uh, use new ways, I think, to uh, address that issue. But it's still a problem and it's going to take time. I mean, not only when someone first comes to work for the National Park Service, then, you know, unless they've worked for the Park Service before, you know, they're going to have to learn how the National Park Service does business. So there's um, there's some great challenges ahead for sure. You know, you both have mentioned personnel issues and um, looking at the, the money coming from the Great American Outdoors Act and from the uh, infrastructure um, legislation that passed, and there's hundreds of millions, if not billions more, waiting in the in the the Build Back Better bill if that ever gets passed. So we're possibly looking, if if not definitely looking, at the greatest financial infusion into the park system since Mission 66, at least, if not ever. But the other side of the coin is is personnel. I mean, you know, there's money, I guess, in the Build Back Better plan to hire personnel, but if that falls apart, there's money on one side, but there's not personnel on the other side. And I've heard people lamenting that we don't see interpretive rangers leading tours in the parks anymore. So is this a a piecemeal approach to improving the national park system? No. Well, as you mentioned, the Build Back Better bill 
presently in the Senate version has a billion dollars for park staffing, which will be spread out over the 10 year time period. The life of the bill is 10 years. So that's a billion dollars spread out. That is transformational. That will help the park service hire the scientists, the contractors, you know, people with expertise to be able to fulfill the needs of the park system that are coming up in all of these bills, whether it's infrastructure or climate uh, related projects. So, so these things have to work in tandem with each other. The appropriations bill needs to pass with the additional funds for staffing and the Build Back Better bill needs to pass in order to create this new capacity. Absolutely. But remember, in terms of the interpretive rangers, Kurt, one of the barriers to getting more people on the ground this year was COVID, the COVID policies, which didn't allow some parks to put staff in the same dwelling. In some cases, the reasons why folks haven't seen the seasonals on the ground that they're used to and the interpretive staff is is purely because of COVID policy. So I'm just putting that out there because it's not just understaffing. It's also we're in a pandemic still. Well, certainly that complicated things, but I know this has been going on for some years. In fact, I I freshly remember um, a, a trip I took down into Horseshoe Canyon at Canyonlands National Park to see the Great Gallery. And uh, this was probably, geez, a decade ago. And the, the interpretive ranger at the time said that she was leaving interpretation to go into law enforcement because that's where the, the money was and that's where the personnel were being hired and that's was a better full-time job. Phil, what, what's your take on the, the, the staffing situation on the ground? Well, once again, it's the process, but and COVID is, is certainly a big issue. But if you look at the interpretive ranger population in the National Park Service, it's never been big to begin with. And it was somewhere around 8% of the total number of employees. And so when you make a cut and you, you take the 8% and make it 6% or 5%, and you've got big parks and a lot of visitors, you just aren't going to see very many people. I remember going to the Great Smokies back in 1994, surprised to find out that in Cage Cove, which has 2 million visitors a year, we had one permanent employee there, one permanent interpreter. You go to Blue Ridge Parkway, the Moses Cone Estate, which has 400,000 people a year. They have zero permanent interpreters there. And so that's been an, a long time problem, uh, nothing new. And, and some people have even discussed uh, looking at completely new ways of doing interpretation, which, which would not include a lot of people on the ground but more virtual interpretation. So it's been a challenge for a long time. We'll continue to be. Well, I hope it doesn't go totally virtual. I mean, there's so much value in having a live interpreter out there who can who can field questions and um, answer questions. And, and to add to that point, Kurt, one of the things that we're going to be highlighting early next year is the disparity of cultural resource interpretation, just generally speaking, both updating what's in visitor centers and on waysides and and so forth, and beefing up the staff on cultural and historic resources. So folks should just be on the lookout. NPCA will be putting out a report in early 2022 that will we'll get at some of these issues and the understaffing on the interpretive and cultural resources side. But we're hoping to draw some attention to it so that folks 
and Congress can really connect in better with um, what the challenges at the Park Service are with all of this. So, so I didn't mean to make any excuses in what I said last time, um, but we want to make sure that if this money does get injected into the Park Service um, from an, uh, appropriations and build back better that someone, um, whether it's Chuck Sams or others at the Park Service really focus in on, on cultural resources and interpretation. Well, that's good to hear because, um, yeah, those are long been uh, issues out there in the parks that uh, really need to be improved upon. I'm going to try and move this thing along because we, we only have an hour and we probably have about five hours of, of topics to, to discuss. In terms of park funding, I had a conversation the other day and a proposal of, you know, when, when you buy a fishing license or, or you buy a hunting license, a portion of your license fee or your duck stamp fee goes to, I believe, the Fish and Wildlife Service to help um, with wildlife refuges and whatnot. What about a dedicated excise fee on, on outdoor equipment that could go to the Park Service? Not a bad idea. It's been considered before. I think the question is, how do you divide it? You know, you've got Fish and Wildlife Service, Forest Service, state parks, local parks. You know, how do you distribute that? But I just, you know, anything like that is certainly worth the uh, worth consideration and maybe giving it a try. It's not unlike to me personalized license plates on cars, you know, where all the money or part of the money to buy those license plates goes back to the park. I mean, that has made a big difference in some parks like Blue, uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park. You know, there's hundreds of thousands of dollars, Blue Ridge Parkway, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so, you know, it, those are nice supplemental ways of funding needs, but uh, you really can't use those kinds of monies to hire staff because of the uncertainty of how much money will be coming from one year to the next. Uh, so you can't hire a permanent person and then all of a sudden the money is gone. Uh, then that puts pressure on the remainder of the budget. Kristen, any concerns that if something like that were created, that Congress would say, well, geez, we don't have to give the Park Service that much money anymore? That's always a concern and something that those of us who've been around lobbying on park funding always focusing on what any fees any fees could be a threat to the appropriations that the park service gets and so uh, we need the federal government we need congress to continue to invest in the parks and so any additional fee whether it comes from private sources or from entrance fees or whatever we always want to make it take a careful look and like phil said shape shape it so that it's it's funding some specific project work or programmatic work that um, we're not, you know, having park staff dependent on a fee, um, the staffing dependent on a fee. Yeah. I, I remember, Bert, I was in a meeting when I first went to the Smokies and one of the people in the room for this friends group meeting, it was a very wealthy uh, gentleman, very wealthy gentleman. And he made a statement that I've always remembered, and that is that he, he pays a lot of taxes already, and that if he ever discovered that donations were replacing appropriations, he would stop giving. Hmm. He would stop giving. So, and I, you know, I think, that's, I think that's right. I think, as Kristen just said, the responsibility rests with the federal government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the federal government should provide the, the kind of funding to help 
protect the parks as the Congress determined many years ago. You know, another another topic you mentioned, Christian, um, air tour management plans. I mean, that's kind of uh, um, an overlooked and uh, out of hearing, perhaps, um, topic that we don't discuss that often. I was uh, at Hawaii Volcanoes National Park in um, November, and um, my wife and I and our, our youngest son and his wife were standing um, on a viewpoint where we could look down into the Kilauea Crater and uh, watch the fountaining, which was just fantastic. But I couldn't ignore the helicopter that flew overhead. And I believe that Hawaii Volcanoes has more air tours than any other park except um, Grand Canyon National Park, um, which can get pretty zooey. Where are we with that, Kristen? I know it's it's been a, a subject dear to your heart. Uh, are we seeing progress? Are, are the parks uh, coming up with adequate um, management plans? Let me try to say this diplomatically. As someone who sat on the commission the Congressionally Chartered Commission, um, we have suffered for two decades without any air tour plans. So a law was passed, the National Park Air Tour Management Act was passed in 2000 and absolutely nothing has been done in two decades. It, It has been a complete shirking of responsibility. So finally, Peer, one of our- um, Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility. Correct. They sued and won, which is fantastic. And now the Park Service and FAA, Federal Aviation Administration, are required to complete 23 air tour management plans by the end of next year. They have put out 15 draft plans for parks like Great Smokies, Glacier, Golden Gate, Bandelier. Every single one of these is incredibly deficient and the public should be outraged about it. None of them, zero, have any sound study that the Park Service has done in them. This means the Park Service has an actual sound program that actually started because of the Air Tour Management Act and not a single air study or a sound study, sorry, Um, has been included in any of these draft plans. What they are doing is taking an average number of air tours in each park and using that as the baseline for doing these air tour plans. That is not what the law says. The law says to protect each park from adverse effects, to actively protect against visitor conflicts, which means the people like you, Kurt, and your son and your wife who were enjoying the park on the ground, but having helicopters buzz over your head, that's a visitor conflict. None of these plans adequately address any of those topics. What they should be doing for these plans, and and I believe the Park Service knows this, is they should be looking at the ambient natural sound and using that as the baseline. What does it take for a visitor on the ground to enjoy the natural sounds of the park? That should be the achieve the, the goal that they're seeking to achieve. But instead, we have these nine to 15 page plans that are all cookie cutter that just take an average of air tours and does not seek to adequately protect the parks and the visitors on the ground and the tribal areas, which the law requires they do. I'm tired of hearing that the FAA is the bad actor here and they're the ones preventing that. The park service is in this too. They need to 
use their own sound studies and they need to be a part of this planning process. And the worst part about it of all of this is that they've already told the public in, in different public meetings that they had with the air tour plans that they want to use something called a categorical exclusion. This means that they're not even going to review the environmental consequences. They're not even going to tell you if the wildlife are impacted. They're not even going to give you the option of no air tours to comment on. So Death Valley and Mount Rainier are suggesting two air tours a year. Why? Why even bother the Park Service with managing those air tours? In Bandelier, we understand that the Pueblos have asked for no air tours over the park. Why isn't that being considered? For Great Smokies, Phil just talked about, why aren't they protecting the wilderness at the Great Smokies? And why at Bryce are they allowing every single air tour operator to do a figure eight over the park? So that means if there's an air tour over Bryce at any given day, every single visitor will be impacted by that noise. Why aren't we talking about allowing the air tours on the periphery of the park? None of these things are going to be considered if they continue to move forward with categorical exclusions. If you can't hear the anger in my voice, <laughs> I am just absolutely frustrated that, you know, this is an opportunity after 20 years of nothing to actually do something to protect the parks. And we haven't seen any movement in that direction in these draft plans and it needs to change. They need to better protect the parks. Any any indication that the, the Biden administration will, will change tact on this? I have banged on every door at Interior and I've given the same speech to many, many people. And I'm, and I'm gonna do the same with FAA. And Phil and uh, the coalition are with us on all of this. We've commented on all these plans and we're going to just keep knocking on every door until we get these things fixed, but they're, they're terrible. And, uh, and we haven't even, these 15 plans that we've seen so far, aren't even the Hawaii parks, not even the parks that have way too many air tours right now. So if they're not going to do a good job on these 15 plans, what's going to happen with the parks that are really struggling with an overwhelming amount of air tours. That's, that's one of our deepest concerns here is the first 15 aren't even being done well. And then on the ground, let me add, on the ground, you know, it's nearly impossible to manage. Let's say the Great Smokies allowed it for 100 if their last approved plan. You know, there's, there's probably several hundred going on now. They never evaluated the first impacts of the first 100. And so NEPA would require that kind of analysis on the first 100. But I just wanted to emphasize what Kristen just said is this categorical exclusion for the first 100, and then it really ought to be bigger than what that level was, uh, you know, isn't insane. I don't understand it. I really don't understand it. The only thing, the only explanation I have was politics are involved. So yeah, we got to change this. Yeah, I looked at a number of the plans and it, and it looked pretty much like a, a, a cookie cutter approach that the, the, the greatest thing that was changed was the name of the park. And yep. we didn't even do that in every single one of them. There were two parks where they, in the announcement that they made, they accidentally forgot to remove the language from Glacier. They actually had to extend the comment periods in, in uh, Great Smokies and Bandelier because they accidentally said they were going to eliminate 
steer towards through attrition because they forgot to take the language out from the glacier plan when they posted the public notices on Bandelier and Great Smokies. So cookie cutter, sometimes bad cut and paste job too. Yeah. You know, in some of the parks that aren't mentioned, I mean, Montezuma Castle has had an issue in the past with uh, air tours. And there was a, a story I recall where they, the, the park staff recounted a, a helicopter pretty much flying across right up, right up to the face of the cliff dwelling and the concerns that the reverberation from the, the Whirlybird's um, blades would, would affect the, the structural integrity of that. So, I mean, what about the smaller parks? Are they going to be um, eventually rolled into this uh, air management tour plan or just left out there on their own? Yeah, they're supposed to. All, all the ones, are, Kristen, I think, are supposed to have a air an approved plan, right? right? I mean, it's not just limited to this initial uh, go-round. Yeah, the, the, they've identified which parks are active air tour um, operators outside of them. So they're all uh, part of this. But so far, there's not been a discussion about adding other parks, Kurt. But that doesn't mean that something like that couldn't happen in the future. Operators can make requests whenever they want uh, to operate over a park. So, um, But we got to get this right. Yep. You know, and and I I think one of the most valuable things in the last, you know, few years at the Park Service has been the sound program. They do both night skies and, and sounds, natural sounds. And if we're not using these experts at the Park Service to develop these plans, that's just a really sad state of affairs. Yeah. yeah. Well, it is. And just like helicopters, I mean, if you go to the Smokies or Blue Ridge Parkway, you know, motorcycles who have replaced the original exhaust system with the new one are so loud that you can hear them almost entirely throughout. And it's in the case of the smokers, one motorcycle can be heard throughout the entire park, 522,000 acres. It's <laughs> unbelievable. And so there, I don't know what the answer is to this very complicated cities like Denver have tried to address this problem. But, uh, but I remember when I was superintendent of Parkway and we had some special guests during the 75th anniversary, we could hardly have a discussion on the overlooks because of the noise associated with uh, the motorcycles. Yeah, I know it's a big issue in, in Yellowstone and Grand Teton in um, late July, early August when you've got the, um, the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally in, in Sturgis, South Dakota and all the motorcycles either heading over there or going back and they go through the parks and that's been a great concern. We're talking today with uh, Phil Francis of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks and Christian Brengo from the National Parks Conservation Association about the past year in the National Parks and uh, the National Park Service in terms of news. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experiences in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway, it is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. 
The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Okay, we're back with Kristen Brengo from the National Parks Conservation Association and Phil Francis from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. I'm talking about news events across the National Park System and the National Park Service this past year. Alert to listeners, we're going to run a little bit longer than usual today because there are a lot of important topics to discuss. And, and one of them is um, park visitation and park crowding. And um, we're seeing more parks moving to a, a reservation system approach, at least on a temporary basis. Late this year, we heard that Arches National Park is going to be moving to a timed entry reservation system next year during the busy season, and that uh, Glacier National Park is going to be um, continuing its uh, ticketed entry for the going to the Sun Road and, and up uh, north to, to Pole Bridge. What do you guys think about these? Is this the, the wave of the future? I mean, I know I've always been concerned about overcrowding in parks and that there should be some sort of mechanism to, to better manage the crowds to protect the natural resources as, as well as to protect the park staffs, which are um, notoriously understaffed when it comes to visitor management. What are your thoughts? Well, I could start off by just saying, I, I think it's terrible when you go, if you, if you arrive at Arches and uh, there's a sign saying, please come back in three to four hours because you, we just can't get you in to the park. And so how do you effectively address the uncertainty that some visitors will have when they show up at a park? The only way at this point during those times of year where you just have this rush of visitors is to give people a ticket, give them a time and let them go do other things, you know, before they arrive at the park, go to a bookstore in Moab, go visit some adjoining BLM lands that, that are incredible. And so in some ways, it really allows people to think about their visit um, and arrange it in a way so they can enjoy the entire, you know, regional area while they're in a specific location. So I think providing some visitors with certainty in the parks that have just incredible crushes of visitors. Um, you know, I've been to Acadia several times in the last few years. And knowing that you can get a ticket now to go to Cadillac Mountain, and and if you if you're a family that likes to go 
you know, wake up late and go in the middle of the day, this will secure your ticket to get a parking spot on top of Cadillac Mountain at Acadia, going to the Sun Road. I've heard really good things from our staff about being able to really enjoy it more and to find parking and all that stuff as you're traveling uh, down the road. Same thing with uh, Yosemite. We've heard really positive feedback from folks about just how it, it feels more opened up uh, when you go into the valley. And so, you know, it, as long as people want to continue to go to the outdoors and visit parks and, and check them off their bucket lists, I think we have to be creative about giving people certainty about their visits. I think the only thing, Kurt, that we just need to make sure we're doing with whether it's the park service or groups like ours is making sure the public knows to check recreation.gov and to check the park services website to see if the reservation systems are needed at the time of year that you're going to visit but get get the public in the routine of checking the websites and checking recreation.gov before they visit a park that's what i think you know, we need to focus on in the next year or so is, is really just educating the public about, about these things. But, um, but we have to protect the resources and we also want people to be able to enjoy the parks without circling a parking lot for hours. Well, there's certainly the, the aspect of, you know, how is the overcrowding affecting the visitor experience? Um, Phil, what, what have you seen over the years? Well, and, all, and also the resources, damaging yeah. of the resources. And so it's going to be complex. For many years, uh, we have been issuing tickets to go to the Washington Monument. You can go at a certain time, go up. And the same kind of system obviously would work in other parks. But the, the, it'll become more complicated uh, when you start adding a different variable to the discussion. And that is, how long do you get to stay once you get a ticket? And how many people uh, can fit into the backcountry and still provide the kind of experience that people desire? How many people can be in the Smokies backcountry at once or whichever part of the, the photograph you've got behind you there, Kurt? You know, how many people will be in that backcountry, you know, to not only provide the experience so that people don't see too many people, so that it's overcrowded, and to ensure that the trails and those areas adjacent to the trails are not being overly damaged by the use. And then what kind of uses are going to be okay? Is it going to be okay to use electric bikes in the backcountry? I mean, there's a lot of pressure to do that now. Are we going to change the wilderness designation, the wilderness criteria and kinds of uses, you know, to, to uh, address the demand for more public space? Or, you know, are we going to find more federal lands outside of the national parks where the, that kind of experience is available and we can redirect people to that? Uh, so this is a complicated question and no easy answers. It's going to require funding and studies. It's going to be tough. So the recreation initiative, which really started during the last administration, I, I can, I'm sure that the hospitality industry, outdoor industry is really pushing for that still. So there's politics involved too. So. And also the local economies are going to be affected by these decisions. So it's a complicated, complicated area. It'll be interesting to see how it turns out. Yeah, it will be. And um, 
you know, I think uh, the Park Service at Yosemite National Park learned a lot when they started requiring permits to, to hike up to Half Dome. And, um, you know, next year we're going to see permits required for hiking up Angel's Landing in Zion National Park. One concern I'm curious about is, you know, a lot of these um, ticketing systems are going through recreation.gov. And um, regular readers of the Traveler know well the ills of recreation.gov. And there's a lot of concerns out there that it is being manipulated, that um, the general public is being locked out by some bad actors out there who have figured out a way to, to get around the recreation.gov um, in terms of landing a, a permit. Um, what about that? Is, is recreation.gov the, the answer? I don't know what else you would use, but... Exactly. I did. I did bring it up with the Interior Department this week when I spoke with folks that um, we, we do need to take a look at recreation.gov and um, understand what the suite of issues are with it in terms of everything from what you're saying to people gaming the system to the bandwidth and so forth. So so they took note of it when I, when I raised it with them this week, but um, we have to improve it. We have to get it to a spot where the public can use it and rely on it. So I don't want to be a naysayer about recreation.gov. I, I just want to make sure they have the resources to improve it. Well, here's a, a key issue. I mean, the bandwidth. Here in here in Backwater, Park City, Utah, I've got some of the worst internet service possible out there. And there's no way I can compete with somebody who has fiber optics in terms of clicking on that button when the, the window opens. That's just one example, one community. When you look across the nation, there is the haves and the have-nots in terms of being able to have a fast internet connection to get through. So, you know, I don't know. There's been talk about um, what about um, leaving some, uh, you know, sites available, tickets available for, you know, people who show up. And I know recreation.gov gives the parks the ability to to reserve some other campsites, for example, for, for people who show up at the last minute without a reservation. Um, that's one way to do it. I don't know how you do it with um, letting people into the park, period. The Rocky Mountain, Yosemite, and the Arches plan all include day of ticket uh, access. And so as the Park Service has been putting these in place over the last few years, they are refining the system so that people can get day of. Um, and and even I think Arches, if I remember correctly in the announcement, they talked about even the night before being able to get a ticket for the next day. So I think the Park Service is, is going through a sort of trial and error with some of these to, to make sure they're not turning people away. You know, one topic that neither one of you mentioned, I was kind of surprised, um, Bears Ears and Grand Staircase, the President Biden's decision to um, reverse President Trump's decision to break them up and reduce them in size. And, um, of course, uh, the state of Utah is already chomping at the, the bits to go to court over this. W what's your take? Is this just going to be a, a tennis match, a ping pong game? We go back and forth from one administration to another to um, you know push our political wishes? I hope not. I always point to the picture that's where is it? Over here in my my dining room of Grand Staircase Escalani. It's definitely one of the most amazing places in Utah to go visit. And so uh, I hope I hope folks as they're traveling to the national parks go enjoy it too. But uh, no, it shouldn't be a political football. And I think what folks are going to hear in the next couple of uh, years is how much 
tribes are going to engage in the management of these places and how we're going to start to really improve the interpretation there and the appreciation for the cultural resources there. You know this, Kurt, one of the coolest things about Grand Staircase is how, ma how many fossils they continue to find in the area. It's just incredible the amount of science we can do in these places. And so I think, I think what we need to do in the next couple of years is continue to educate Congress and the public about the value of these two incredible places and continue to draw the public support that we have over the last few years. I mean, there is no topic that NPCA talks about that gets more public engagement than Bears Ears and Grand Staircase. People have really grown to love these places. They've become flagship parts of conservation in our movement in the last few years. And the more popular they are, the more untouchable they are. And that's gonna be really critical. In terms of the court cases, if anyone is paying close attention to it, uh, the state of Utah hasn't filed a lawsuit yet. They just hired a law firm in Washington, D.C. to look into it. And we know that over time, the Supreme Court has said that the president does have the authority to designate monuments. Grand Staircase has already been uh, through the court system and their boundaries and, their, and the establishment of Grand Staircase has already been uh, okayed by the courts back in the 2000s. And so if we, if we start tearing apart our conservation legacy in this country, it, it's just part of the, our American values. If we, we don't support conservation and having natural places, we start you know, chewing away at our own, the own, our own fabric of this country. And I, I don't think that's something the public is gonna support long-term. So, so I hope the result of the state of Utah's RFP process for their law firm is that it's just not worth it. Let's start talking about how to protect these places and not destroy them. I couldn't agree more. I know there's an attorney here in Knoxville area that is a big hiker, camper, whenever he's able to get out of the office, he's in the back country somewhere. And I was at a meeting with him one day and he was, he was just talking about how beautiful Grand Staircase is. And it's one of the most special places he's ever been to in the country and how important it is to protect it. And, and I think once something's been designated, there ought to be some assurance that, that it can't change and become a political chip. So, you know, I, I'm glad to hear Kristen's report. She knows more about this than I do. And so I still think she should be the deputy director, director of the Park Service. She would do a great job. Well, I'm curious. We're talking court cases. After President Trump um, issued his executive orders, um, shrinking the size of those two monuments and impacting other monuments across the, the nation, conservation and environmental groups filed their own lawsuits in court questioning the ability of President Trump to reverse a monumental designation. And I believe that that court case was never resolved. Right. I, I don't know if it is still in limbo or if it went away because the, the Biden administration came into office and, and changed tax. But I'd be curious to, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't the groups have pushed to get a, a decision on whether a president can reverse a previous designation of a national monument. And then beyond that, 
Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, has kind of opened the door a little bit to being interested in considering how big a monument is. That question came up during, I believe, a commercial fisherman brought a lawsuit over the Northeast Seamounts and Canyons um, National Monument. And while the Supreme Court declined to hear it, uh, I believe the Chief Justice um, kind of opened the door like, well, the, the question wasn't phrased properly in terms of how, how big is too big or how small is too small. Kristen, do you have any insight into where those stand? Well, in terms of the lawsuit that NPCA and the tribes and several other groups brought up or filed when Trump uh, reduced the size of Grand Staircase and Bears Ears, the judge, from from our estimation, we we tried to um, have her rule on his illegal action, and she didn't take it up. And so at this point, where uh, she requested that we respond to her inquiry about whether it's moot now. And so our attorneys are in talks with the interior department about how to move forward with our existing lawsuit. In terms of Chief Justice Roberts and his um, the words that he provided uh, in a response, you know, through the history of the Antiquities Act, many people know that the Grand Canyon was increased uh, twice, I believe, through the Antiquities Act. It has been used continuously over the last, you know, more than 100 years to protect large places uh, that had great conservation and scientific value. And so we believe that if presented with all of this information, then it would clarify some of these issues on protecting these large areas through the Antiquities Act, but it's consistently been used that way for over a hundred years. And so, and, and we wouldn't have the park system we have today if we didn't have such a strong Antiquities Act and strong designations over the last hundred or more years. So uh, what do you say to someone who says the Grand Canyon shouldn't be protected when at the time when Teddy Roosevelt was seeking to protect these places, there were incredible mining threats and we wouldn't have the Grand Canyon as we know it today if the Antiquities Act didn't exist because Congress didn't have the will to protect the Grand Canyon itself. And so I think presented with some of these arguments and presented with sort of the fate of these areas, if we didn't have this tool, I would hope that the courts would support how the Antiquities Act has been applied over the, the last hundred years. There are so many issues out there across the, the national park system that deserve some attention and discussion. Um, like I mentioned early on, you know, the threat of oil exploration in Big Cypress National Preserve, for, for one. You've got um, the, the issue of uh, the, the sea turtle program at Padre Island, which um, I think deserves some more um, sunlight to really understand what's going on with that. You talk about climate change, and of course, we've got the the wildfires that uh, roared through the parks in California. Earlier this year, The Traveler did a, a series of stories on how the drought in the Southwest has impacted national park units in the Southwest. And I think you can look anywhere in the country and take up a similar series of stories, whether it's you know the wildfires in California and, and some of the other Western states or the torrential rains that are coming to the Pacific Northwest and how that's impacting the parks or how sea level rise is impacting 
the parks along the coastal areas. Um, it just never slows down. And, you know, with climate change, it, it, I guess it's just a, a managerial evolution in terms of responding to the most recent situation. I agree. You know, I think an interesting thing that's going to be coming up has to do with uh, some of this administration's proposals to to develop energy self-sufficiency and how that might impact uh, units of the National Park Service like Theodore Roosevelt or maybe off the coast, Atlantic coast, maybe, I hope not, but in Maine and Acadia. And it sort of brings up this issue about the, the adequately protect the National Park Service when multiple agencies are involved and when an agency other than the National Park Service is a lead agency in doing the environmental compliance work, I think it would be worth considering giving the National Park Service veto authority, which would probably never happen. But, you know, I think about the spaceport down at uh, Cumberland Island and the fact that they may be shooting rockets that have a 20% failure rate and they have to evacuate the island and they're putting responsibility in the National Park Service to accommodate those demands that's associated with launching. And you think about Big Cypress and you think about all these other issues where there's multiple agencies. You know, the FAA is involved down at Camden, uh, at the spaceport in Camden. And, and when the Park Service has written responses, uh, the FAA just seems to ignore them altogether. And that's been the history, I think, with the air tour management plans. Maybe the Park Service needs more authority so they can move some of these issues forward and not be in limbo for decades. You know, I'm talking about climate change and ways to combat it, and we're, we're seeing more and more um, electric vehicles out there. Does the park system have enough chargers? I know I know some of the, the units have done a good job in installing them, but but how do you how do you put a network of chargers, for instance, in, in a place like Theodore Roosevelt or, or Glacier National Park? Um, some of the more remote parks, um, and how many is enough? I think that's going to be an interesting story to watch in the, in the coming years as more and more people buy electronic electric vehicles. Yeah, I was talking to a superintendent about this, and one really interesting thing that they brought up was the amount of electricity coming into the park, and that they don't actually have enough electricity coming into the park to put EV power stations in order to charge the vehicles. And so some of it is thinking about transmission of electricity and beefing that up. And then you have to ask yourself, what do you, where do you put it then? Do you put it outside of the park? So people can do the charging stations outside of the park or do you put it in the park? But you're right that in some rural areas, the park service staff are saying to us, we just don't have enough electricity coming into the park to handle something like that. So in addition to the money that the infrastructure bill has uh, that just passed, we're also going to have to just think about our energy infrastructure generally and, uh, and whether or not we have enough supply going to certain rural areas. So it's, it's a whole, it's a, it's a complex problem that goes beyond the park service. Yeah. I wonder if we'll see more, um, more parks putting up their own arrays of solar panels. Like, uh, you know, you go to Furnace Creek in Death Valley and um, the concessionaire, I guess it's not a concessionaire, it's privately owned. Um, they have an incredible solar panel array there. And I know up in Glacier, it's a, it's a very small scale, um, but 
I believe in one of the backcountry ranger stations, they actually have a little hydropower generating system in a stream to, to power the, the, the backcountry cabin. But um, definitely have to get creative going forward if we're going to um, both um, address climate change and uh, provide electricity for these various um, needs. Well, and I think also we need to think about now that we have the Great American Outdoors Act money and we could be getting more money, billions of dollars into the Park Service uh, for climate resilience and restoration projects through the Build Back Better bill, as these pots of money are making themselves available, how do we have sustainable infrastructure in the parks and how do we encourage better materials, better insulation, solar panels? What are all of the options the Park Service has as we invest money in infrastructure in the parks? How do we green the infrastructure and make sure that these uh, materials will last longer than emission 66 materials, for instance. So that's something, you know, as, as you know, we go into the next year that, uh, you know, I hope that we can continue to make a case for, for greening the parks. Yeah, and not, not only for visitors, but, but for park service employees and doing their work, you know, electric vehicles, big trucks. I mean, there's um, solar panels, whatever to make an investment inside the park so that the parks can be like demonstration areas for how it might be done well. And that's actually in the management policies, you know, mm-hmm. one of the things, one of the best outcomes of the um, management policy fight in 2006 was that I think Secretary Kempthorne even uh, supported that we're in them was using parks to innovate on new technology. And so um, it's definitely something that's in there um, in their goals and management policies. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chuck Sam certainly has a, a lot of work on his uh, to-do list, and it'll be interesting to see um, how that goes forward. Um, Phil, Kristen, I'd love to continue this discussion, but um, it's not going to be possible today. I hope you and all our listeners have a, a great and happy New Year's, and I know um, these issues aren't going to go away, and there will be new issues coming forward. So I'm sure we'll be visiting again in the not-too-distant future. Yes. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy holidays. Yeah. Take care. That's our last show for 2021. We hope you enjoyed it. The past year has been full of both wonder and great concern across the national park system. Tracking those stories is our sole role at National Parks Traveler because you should know both how to make the most out of your national park experience as well as how the parks are being managed and impacted. Next week, Lynn Riddick will be back with an episode from her visit to Big Bend National Park. If you have found our weekly podcast rewarding, please contribute to our year-end fundraising campaign. It's your support that makes these podcasts possible. Here's to a safe, peaceful, and wonderful new year. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. 
editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Split Beard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.